I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from P Portsmouth Public Media TV, it's Channel 98 in New Hampshire. We're really glad to be with you tonight, the night before Halloween in Portsmouth. <laughs> thanks to those watching and listening, and special thanks to our audience. Give yourself a hand for being here. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide space for people to tell their first-person experience stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. And we do encourage the development of storytelling skills. We have monthly workshops and other assistance that we are happy to provide to tellers. However, it's not a competition. We don't have any ranking or scoring or judging. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us, and that is the reason that we're here. The theme for tonight's show is it could have been worse, <laughs> which means you should expect stories that are pretty bad but not the worst, right? <laughs> so. Uh, we have six tellers up tonight, and a little different, those of you who have programs, we had a couple shifts in the last few days, so who we are expecting to see, to hear tonight, who you're going to hear tonight, is Sharon Rhodes, Danielle Rocco, Susan Lang, this isn't quite in order anymore, Tina Charpentier, Andrew Romaley, and Tom Osberg. Each of the tellers has a 10-minute limit for their story, and each will be introduced to you in the correct order, don't worry, tellers, <laughs> by Pat Spaulding. So after the storytelling, there will also be an interview that you're welcome to stay for. Tonight it will be with Tina Charpentier. In the meantime, we're going to hear the stories, and let's welcome Pat up to start introducing our tellers to you. Come on up, Pat. Hi, everyone. Glad you could make it. First up, we have Susan Lang. She is a holistic nurse and the founder of the Alliance for Art, Healing, and Adventure in Greenland, New Hampshire, where she conducts workshops that involve the shamanic process for inner guidance. An early practitioner of integrative medicine, she has studied the traditional healing practices of South American indigenous healers, Chinese energetics, Japanese Reiki, and Hawaiian medicine. Based on the three guiding principles of love, action, and wisdom, Susan assists others in transcending their human suffering to create meaningful, heart-centered lives through art, integrative healing, and spiritual travel. Woof. The title of her story tonight is a bit of a contrast to all that I've said about her so far. <laughs> it is Dr. Frankenstein, I presume, which is a good way to start <laughs> this Halloween night, almost uh, trick-or-treat night. Come on up, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay, thank you. It was a dark and scary time for me in my life. I was 37 years old, and I was told that I wouldn't live past 50. 
I had been heavily medicated and severely ill with asthma. And so in desperation, I decided to go on a trip to the jungle, the Amazon, to go and take the ayahuasca medicine with the headhunters, the schwa of the Amazon. There's a group of us, there's about eight of us, and there's five women and three men and two group leaders. And as we are getting to know each other, we're finding out why other people have come along to join in and take part of the ayahuasca, which is also known as the vine of the soul or the vine of death. And so as people are sharing, there's a husband and wife that have come from Spain. They're very good friends with our leader. And um, they've come because Mary had been in a terrible mountaineering fall and accident that caused her husband to fall to his death. And the man that married her recently did as a friend, and he did it to protect her and take care of her as a form of love. And um, it was a marriage of convenience that way. And Juan and Mary seemed to be very much connected as if they were, well, they were actually expressing a lot of affection towards each other as we were going along in the trip. And it wasn't really clear why that had been happening. But when Ricky explained to me why he had brought his wife to be healed with the ayahuasca, it began to make more sense. And then also, um, Ricky had made a beautiful knife for Juan. And it was a hand um, welded and hand carved. And he made a leather sheath for it. And he brought it to give it to him while they were in the jungle during an ayahuasca ceremony. So we arrive in the jungle, we get off the plains, and here we are, and we were greeted by the schwa, and they're, they're um, a very fierce looking people, short, straight dark hair, dark eyes, and, um, and of course we're instructed, there are several things we're instructed to do. Do not look the people in the eyes, and especially don't look the men in the eyes, as it indicates that you want to have a relationship with them. And that had actually happened where two women had been carried off in the middle of the night because they looked them in the eyes. So we were to take these things seriously. And the other thing was to also remember that we were among the first outsiders that they would ever see. And so everything that we did, how we treated each other, how we treated them, would also be observed pretty heavily. So, um, oh yeah, and the other things were that, watch out for leaf cutting ants with the red fire ants, Watch out for the bullet ants. They're big black ants with huge pincers on them, and that if you get bit by one, it could kill you. If you could get to a hospital, you might survive, and you'd be at least two weeks in the hospital. Anaconda, crocodiles, scorpions, you name it. These are all new things to be aware of as we're there. So we begin our journey. We, we all have duffel bags. We begin our journey. We're taken to the edge of the Amazon where we're to get into these um, dugout canoes to go to the chief shaman. So we get in the canoes, and our guests find it rather amusing to tip our canoes. And you can see the crocodile in the water. And so it's, it's scary. And so we get over to the, the shoreline, and we go up to the hut where Tumguam is, and it is a very long hut, and he greets us. And again, he's a very short, petite man, but he's unusual among the schwa because he's elderly, and he's at least 75 years old. And that's unusual because they only live typically to be about 45. And what makes that unusual for him is that he had taken many heads in his lifetime. 
And so he would describe taking the heads and how you would shrink them. And he would light up when he was discussing this with us. And of course, we had schwa to quichua to Spanish to English. So we had all these levels of interpretation. So we knew what was going on. So he invites us into his hut. And the women share this, what's called chicha. And chicha is something that they chew all day long. It's a root. They chew it and spit it into a bowl, and it ferments. And so as the time came for us to share it, we were also told, really sip it or fake it really good. <laughs> so I did sip it, <laughs> needless to say. And um, so, and then Tunguan, so we're, we're all sitting around, and the night starts, and you only do the ayahuasca ceremony at night. And so as the night comes, Tunguan begins to, he puts on this crown of feathers, and it's a beautiful yellow-orange feather, and he only has like a loincloth on. And he's, he's very little, and he's going around, and he, they use tobacco, and he's blowing tobacco, and he, he extracts from people, and he extracts bad energy, and he does, he's doing all these different things and making all these unusual noises. And he's going around with all of us, and all of a sudden, I notice these deafening noises from the jungle. If you've ever been in the jungle at night, it is a totally deafening experience. There are wonks, there's insects, there's screeching noises. There's all sorts of things that I have no idea what they are. And of course, here we are in the middle of this ayahuasca ceremony, and Tungwam's going around, and he comes to Mary. And um, because Mary had been in this terrible accident with with her husband, he said she was too fragile for the ayahuasca and that it would be too strong and that he couldn't do that for her. And our leader, who we could see was very much in love with her, kept pressing him to do something. He insisted that, that he heal her. And he kept pressing and pressing to the point of which when Ricky decided it was time to step in, and he pushes Juan away, pushes him back, and they begin to fight. And somebody, there's another group, that breaks them up, and then Ricky goes for the knife because he wants to kill him. And he grabs the knife, he comes over, and I've already seen the knife, so he goes to pull the knife out of the sheath, and it's broken. Mm. He drops the knife, and all of that tension is diffused. And then we go on into the night with the ayahuasca ceremony. So for every dose that a person takes, the shaman takes a dose. So six people, this much, he's taking this much for every person. And it goes on into the night. And then we're, and then we're all very much awake. You don't really sleep. The day comes, and, we're, we, and Juan begins again to press Tumguam to heal Mary. And he keeps pressing him and pressing him. But at this point, Tim Guam says that now it's dangerous for me. If I don't have my medicine, I could be hurt if I do this. And Juan keeps pressing him. And Tim Guam decides he will do this. And so he begins to blow smoke. He's extracting, sucking out. And, and all of a sudden, he keels over. And he collapses. He's totally limp, he's drooling, and we can't, he's unconscious, we can't rouse him. 
and now we notice that the sons are at the one entrance to the hut and they're holding their machetes and they're not going to let us out until we heal their father. And they blame Ricky because in their culture, it's a very patriarchal culture. And so they're saying that he didn't protect his wife. And so they're blaming him and they want him to heal their father. And he doesn't, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't even know what to do. And so our group, one of our other group leaders decides to negotiate. And he said, let us take him to the hospital. And they agreed. But in return for that, as leverage, they wanted four people. And so they selected four of us. I was the last one that they picked. Of course, they're like, not me, not me. Okay, so they, they picked four of us. Everybody leaves. They leave us behind. We, everybody disappears. <laughs> we're taken to another location. And we're, we're sat in a, a next up to where the airstrip is, actually. And we're taken to a little hut-like structure that has four poles on it. And they position us each at one pole. And it dawns on me that this is what they do with dead bodies in the jungle, is that they will take the dead body and tie it to a pole and let the jungle reclaim it. And it usually takes about a day. And they believe then you're transformed into a butterfly. But here we are, we're sitting here. And we have, we have our bags, but the women now and the men are protecting, are protecting us. They're, they're guarding us, and they're, they're tapping us with their machetes on the arm, on the leg. And they indicate to open up the bags. And so I open up my bag happily, and I take things out, and I hand them to, to, the, to the different women that are asking for these belongings. And... I'm sitting, and I'm, there's one woman who's next to me, and she's taking my things, and I see out of the corner of my eye a bullet ant. And I, and I don't have to decide what I'm going to do. I didn't want to make any fast movements. So I easily and gently lift my legs up so the ant could go underneath me. And it crawls underneath, and I watch it keep going. And then the day goes on, and we're just sitting there. We have no idea what's going on. We, there's, no, there's no communication. And so at some point later in the day, and I'm looking around at, at the other women. At, by this point, one of the ladies is completely panicked, and she's completely ashen and petrified, and she, really, she can't even talk. She can't even move. We are given nothing during the day, no food or water. And then there's another woman... And she's a very nervous kind of a person, and so she talks the whole time, and she is now telling the story of what's happening and making a movie out of it. And then, then Mary, who was one of the women they had selected, she's all hunched over and she's just doodling in the, in the ground. And I'm just sitting and watching. And I hear the plane coming in the distance, and I'm hoping it's our plane, because we don't know still. And then finally it does, it lands, and we see the schwa men get off the plane. And we don't see anybody else. And that's when I figure we're a goner. We're, we're, we're dead for sure. And then suddenly I look and I see George is getting out of the plane, and he waves us over to come on over. And I grab my empty bag, 
and I run for the plane, and I realize that I have been depossessed of everything except one thing, is my head. <laughs> and I'm 62 years old now. <laughs> Thank you. And I love you. Well then, Susan, it worked. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's an extreme health treatment, if ever I heard one. Mm -hmm. But good on you, it worked. Next up we have uh, Sharon Rhodes. She lives and works in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she is still looking for the perfect studio apartment. Anybody got one? Her new love is traveling. And the story that she'll tell us tonight is titled, You Don't Win Christmas. Come on up, Sharon. Oh, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm gonna read you this whole book. <laughs> um, thank you, thanks everybody for coming too. I wanna dedicate my story to the city of Philadelphia, which is actually next on my list to travel to, it, it is. The suicide rate in New Hampshire has gone up 48.3%. Did you hear that? Can you hear me? They can't hear me. Everybody's signaling. Okay. The suicide rate in New Hampshire has gone up 48.3%. My story is about a Christmas Eve a few years ago where I was feeling terribly alone. My husband had been gone two years. My daughters were elsewhere. And I was by myself again for Christmas Eve. And I was like, I am not going to do this for the rest of my life. This is not going to happen. So I had the means, but I thought, you know, I had heard in Europe that they have what's called emotional emergency rooms. So I thought, okay. I don't know why I was compelled. I got in my car and I drove to the ER and I was not going to go in because I did not want to go to the pavilion. But I just sat in my car and I stopped and I sat and I said, okay, I'm not going in. I'm just going to sit here. And I just sat. I didn't do anything. I didn't have any other distractions. There was nothing else to do really for some reason. And as I sat there, I noticed an ambulance came through. And this is Christmas Eve. And as the ambulance stopped, and I couldn't see exactly what was happening, but it stopped, and they did, took someone in. And cars pulled up next to me, and probably family members went in. And then another ambulance arrived from Newcastle. Shortly thereafter, one from Rye and so on. And I realized, I don't know, almost like, I don't know if you know Caesar Milan, the dog was the dog trainer guy, and he, if the dog is doing something bad, he just like taps him to get his brain to change. And that's what happened to me, I think. I just started going, oh my gosh, you know, these things are happening here that are not good, and I realized that I was not alone. I didn't know these people. 
but it did um, change the direction of the night for me, let's say. And then this book I was reading while I was putting this story together that kind of hit a nerve. It's from John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany. And he says, Ever since the Christmas of 53, I have felt that the Yuletide is a special hell for those families who have suffered any loss or who must admit to any imperfection. The so-called spirit of giving can be as greedy as receiving. Christmas is our time to be aware of what we lack, of who's not home. So I never really thought that I, I don't know why I named it, you know, you don't win Christmas, but our Christmases, my immediate family Christmases were always so, we were always together, maybe for a week at the house for like 22 years. I mean, I never thought I won it, but I de definitely felt that I was losing it. So I want to read you a, a little saying because I, I think it relates. When you try to get rid of fear or anger, what happens? You just get restless or discouraged or have to go get something to eat or smoke or drink or do something else. But if you wait and endure restlessness, greed, hatred, doubt, despair, grief, and sleepiness, if you observe these conditions, as they cease and end, you will attain a kind of calm and mental clarity, which you will never achieve if you're always going after something else. Thanks, Sharon. You're welcome. Um, right. It's good to remember we're not alone, no matter how you feel. Okay, next up we've got Danielle Rocco. She lives in Exeter, is a healthy lifestyle specialist, a television host, motivational speaker, and retreat organizer. Her coaching programs each customized to meet individual clients' goals differ in their delivery. Danielle does online phone, video conferencing, and or face-to-face -face sessions, believing that the top factor of living one's desired life is to untangle the spider webs of one's thoughts. Danielle assists her clients in maximizing the essential non-negotiable habits in their lives and helps them to start living their desired lifestyle. The title of her story is The Growth from the Bad. All right, a good segue for her. Come on, on up.
Danielle Rocco, and tonight my story is the growth from the bad. I can tell you this part of my story now from a place of strength, power, security, hope, and faith. Before the statement, it could have been worse, were words I could say but really didn't feel. Now at 41, a mother, wife, friend, and successful business owner, my it could have been worse makes me smile. I look, can look back and see it clearly. So where do I start? How about when I was five? My parents divorced. I was ripped from my father and brother. That sure could have been worse. Isn't that how divorce goes? It can always be worse. Even the worst of the worst divorces can always be 100% more destructive and dysfunctional. For me, at the age of five, from my own parents' divorce, the growth from the bad took hold and slowly started to transform me. The scrawny, pale-skinned, innocent, vulnerable, blonde, young child changed. I was scared from the fighting, fighting that I can't even remember hearing, but the negative intensity of the household I remember clearly. I developed night terrors and would silently cry for hours. Night was always the worst. Everything is amplified, amplified, amplified in those dark, lonely hours. Without fail, every night, my mother would read me my favorite stories. When the door closed behind her, I would curl up on my bed and cry, silently not wanting to be heard. That is when my angel was born. When I was alone, frightened, confused, he emerged, giving me strength and love. It could be worse, I remember thinking, as he wrapped his pure wings around me and took all the pain from me. Now, whether you believe in angels or not, it doesn't matter. To me, he was real. To me, he gave me the courage to grow from the bad. Years passed, and my angel slowly dissolved. There were no longer the powerful, massive, brilliant, white, soft as silk wings that would wrap around me and protect me from the pain of the world. Instead, that angel became one with me. He sits in me silently and comes out when that pale-skinned, not so innocent anymore, vulnerable, blonde, young girl starts to show up. So many times my angel was with me, like the time he was with me during my first divorce. I was so young, a whooping 18 years old when I married Bill. He swept me off my feet the first time I heard his voice. If I think hard enough, I can still, still hear his slow, deep, southern drawl, that kind that makes your knees buckle. A voice isn't enough to get you through life especially when you are raising a child and you are both still children yourself. So it began. I remember the night when I thought it couldn't be worse. Another round of growth from the bad was put to test. It was a cold New England night. You know the kind. When all you think about is curling up on your couch with a blanket and watching your favorite movie. It had been years since my parents' divorce, and unknowingly, now I was faced with my own. Let me paint the picture for you. I was having a normal day as I taught at my family's gymnastics school. I had an hour left before planning on going home with our son to meet the man of my dreams. Except he had no intention of being home. The phone rang at work and I answered it, expecting to talk to a customer. Instead, I heard his voice. The voice that used to make me fall to my knees said from the other side with such confidence, 
I no longer want to be married to you. You are not the girl I met when you were 15 years old. He left me no time to respond before hanging up. It was over in a flash. In that moment, I wanted to die. Nothing could be worse. Life as I knew it was over, except it wasn't. My angel, the one that protected me all those years ago, was still there. This time, he showed up different. He showed up as an inner strength within me, a strength that I had grown. It can always be worse, and I know that if I had focused on the pain of that night, I would, know the, I would never know the other side of worse. My growth would never have happened. So yes, I can look back now from a place of strength, power, security, hope and faith, and say confidently, it could have been worse. Thanks, Danielle. Um, <laughs> that, uh, coming up next, we've got somebody who traveled all the way from Kansas to be here with us tonight. Yes, we got in touch and asked him if he'd come. <laughs> Actually, uh, Andrew just showed up impromptu because one of our tellers was unable to come, and so, coincidentally, um, he showed up when we needed him. Andrew Romele is the father of six kiddos from Lawrence, Kansas, where he's a doctor of nurse anesthesia in a small private practice. He's here visiting his sister and future brother-in-law and jumped up on the impromptu opportunity to tell a story right here at True Tales Live tonight. Back in Kansas, he enjoys doing community theater, woodworking, reading, cooking, singing in choirs and bands, embarrassing his teenage daughters by singing in public. And <laughs> since that doesn't seem to keep him quite busy enough, he is obsessively learning to play the upright bass. I'm learning to play the bass drum. Nice. Yeah, something about, <laughs> it's all about the bass. Yes. <laughs> His story tonight is titled, Shadow. Come on up, Andrew. I want to first start out by complaining to Sharon because I didn't know we could have theme music. Uh, mine would have been Shaft. Just throwing that out there. You can sing your own song. I might have to. Yeah. We'll see. I'm going to use a southern drawl. Just warning you. Um, so my story starts in 1980. I was nine years old and I was sitting on the edge of a grave. I could smell the dirt, the flowers in my hand, and I could feel the weight of guilt on my chest like a small piano. I felt the guilt because it was my fault that she was dead. Not in the, the way in like your divorce where maybe a kid sort of thinks it's them that they did it, right? It's their fault, something they said or did. Now this, this, this was real. It was my fault. It was an accident. It was tragic. But I had killed Shadow, Shadow Vader Von Fluffy Bottoms. <laughs> Shadow was a one-year-old South American guinea pig. She was black. She was sleek. She was smart. She knew how to poop in my brother's hands and never mine. <laughs> and I'd killed her. The morning it happened, I woke up and I crawled out from under my disco Snoopy sheets from my waterbed and I knew that something was wrong in the house. 
We're going to back that up a second. When I say crawled out, that was slightly more athletic than what I did. Uh, I was about as wide as I was tall back then. Uh, and so I sort of had this weird wriggle writhing movement because as a fat kid, I always end up smushed between the side of the waterbed and the side rail. And so if you can imagine if a jellyfish and an epileptic manatee had a love child, that would have been me as I gracelessly flopped out and landed on that beautiful burnt orange shag carpeting, right? Now, we can back up as to why my father thought it was cool that his nine-year-old son was able to sleep on the side of his post-divorce conquest on this water-filled sex chariot, um, but that's neither here nor there. But like I said, that morning, I knew something was wrong, and what was wrong was that it was hot in this house. I was spending the summer in Nebraska. I usually lived in New York, and I was with my dad, and the air conditioner had broken. So... What I did was grab Shadow and a stack of Atari video games and two fistfuls of bomb pops and went outside. I made a little corral for Shadow. She hung out in the shade and I started double fisting bomb pops over and over until the, the bomb pops were melting. You guys remember bomb pops? Anybody? No. Is this an oil painting? Give me something. Do you remember them? No. Right? Bomb pops, the red, the white, the blue. They were only, maybe they were a Midwest thing. I don't know. Yeah. But it was melting down my little fat, chubby, prepubescent forearms. You know, I was just in heaven. And it was on my third trip to the freezer that inspiration struck. I knew suddenly what to do. As I opened up the freezer door and realized that the only cool and comfortable place in this entire godforsaken Hades of a house was the freezer, I knew what to do. Shadow had to go there. So I made up all the Mrs. Paul's fish sticks and some stuff, and I made like a little bed for her, and I gently placed her in with the intention of just giving her a second, right, to cool off. I closed the door. Couple problems. Mistakes were made. Uh, I was nine. I was hyperkinetic. I was wholly and completely unsupervised. And I forgot. Yeah, you, you kind of see what's coming. A couple hours later, after playing Atari and reading Hardy Boys, because of course Hardy Boys, right? They're awesome. It didn't actually occur to me that she was still in there. It was only when my little fat kid blood sugar dropped enough that I realized I needed another bomb pop that I made it back to the freezer. And I think I sort of knew before I got there because the world kind of got darker. And the only thing left in my vision was the handle of my dad's chugging Frigidaire in that dated 1950s kitchen, right, with that, like, cat shit green linoleum floor, you know what I'm talking about? Until my hand hit the handle, and then I remembered. I remembered it all, and, and I, I didn't want to open the freezer at all, but I, and so I sort of rocked back and rocked back hoping it opened. But you remember those, remember anyone have a 1950s Frigidaire? It had, like, a seal on it, like a sarcophagus. Right? It was like King Tut's tomb in this thing. So I finally had to pull and it popped open. And even then, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to look. Right? So the, the fog is rolling out of this frigid air and going on to linoleum. And I, and I opened it inch by inch by inch until I finally looked inside and, and there was Shadow. And now Shadow, like we remember, was black and she was sleek and beautiful. But right, right now she was sort of frosty. And, and white, and, and she was curled around this half-full thing of, like, freezer-burnt lima beans in what was obviously this last-minute attempt to get some comfort in this cold, dark place, which is really, really sad because I think we can all agree that lima beans have never given anybody comfort, <laughs> ever. 
So I just, I scooped her up and I grabbed her and I went running back to the back of the house and I grabbed that blanket off the back of the couch, you know, that, that, sh that brown one with the picture of the wolf in front of the, the moon that everybody picked up at that, sh that crappy Montana gas station, you know, and I went outside and I was just rocking her and I was praying that she would thaw out and that she, that she would start breathing again because it happens, right? It happened to Han Solo. Anyone see The Empire Strikes Back, right? He came up from the carbonite. Princess Leia was there. He had the sickness going on. I was going to be Shadow's Princess Leia and I was going to bring her back. I was going to nurse her through the moment. She was going to be blind, but it was going to be fine. But Shadow never breathed again. And I knew that whatever deity that Shadow prayed to, and I, and I know she did because she was very spiritual. Not necessarily like organized religion kind of thing, but, but she prayed. And I knew that she was with her guinea pig maker. So I sat there rocking her for I don't know how long until I heard the slam of my dad's 1971 brown Volari station wagon. And I can only imagine what was going through his mind when he hit the door. Because here comes this short, fat bowling ball of flesh come tearing at him, screaming about shadows and freezing and death and lima beans, covered in <laughs> snot and tears. And I told him everything. I told him what I'd done, that it was my fault, that I had killed Shadow. And, and I don't know what I expected. I expected, I think, anger, right? Judgment, because I'd, I'd killed my pet. And, and also, I had forgotten to close the door, so I had probably several hundred dollars worth of, like, melted bomb pops and meat and God knows what in a puddle and on the linoleum. And that was also my fault, so I expected him to be full of rage, but, but he didn't. He put down his bag, and he took a knee, and he opened his arms wide, and he just picked me up. And he just muttered these beautiful, deep bass tones of comfort and he never once told me that it was okay what I had did because it wasn't. He never told me that it was wrong for me to feel guilty because it wasn't. But he did say that we make mistakes. And I realized in that moment that he took this burden from me that I was feeling. And then he took another burden because he, he gently reached out and he took shadow from me. And I had not been able to put her down because I, I had failed her so and I couldn't I couldn't let her go. She was just clutched in my hands, and yet he took her. And he took my hand, and we went outside to the shed, and he, he grabbed a shovel, you know, with the, the rusty shovel and the handle that was gray and, and, and rough in your hands because it's been on too many winters in the Midwest, and, and he had me dig a grave. And he told me that it was my job to dig the grave. And beyond being my job, it was my honor because I had loved her most. And while I dug... And he got a shoebox and he filled it with fresh green grass clippings and honeysuckle flower. He told me to tell stories about Shadow. And so I told stories about all the things that I thought were funny about her and that I loved about her and all the silly things she had done. And he said that that's how we remembered her and we honored her again by telling her stories. And when it was all done and it was time to bury her, he told me what to do and he stepped away just far enough to give me space and time to think and to grieve, and, but far enough away that I had to do it myself and close enough to be comforting. And I buried Shadow. And with every scoop of dirt and every flower petal, I realized that I was, I was getting closure. I didn't know what it meant at the time. That's a word you lose, use when you divorce and you do other things in life, but when you're nine, I, I asked exactly what I had, and I was able to dry my tears a little bit more, and that, that piano that I felt earlier lifted just a little bit.
And the sad part about that moment was that at nine years old, standing at that grave, I knew far too early in life that sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fail the ones that we love most and we fail them so completely and so utterly that nothing we say or do can make it better, that nothing we say or do can repair that damage. But it could have been worse. Because my dad was there, and my dad recognized my grief as being real. It didn't matter if I was nine. It didn't matter I hadn't felt anything in life. I, this was nothing to really to be sad about compared to what we've all done as adults. But he respected it as real, and, and he knew what it was. And because of his words and his kindness, I learned that even though sometimes we fail, that doesn't make us failures. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, um, I think we all want your dad. <laughs> Me too. He's not still around, is he? Oh, he is. Yay! Oh, good. I just as <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, coming up next, we've got Tina Charpentier. Uh, she grew up in Kittery Point, Maine. She has called the Seacoast area home for most of her life and currently lives in Dover. Before joining the military herself, she did what many young women did a few decades ago. She married a military man. In her case, she married Al, a sailor from Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. In 1981, they were stationed on the small remote island country of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf with only about 60 other Americans, including wives and children. Her story is about an adventure there that led to the longest trip of her life. It's titled, The Long Trip Home. Come on up, Tina. Yep, so we were standing on the side of Route 1 in Danvers on a cold November night in 1981. I was hungry and exhausted, and the car was totaled and being towed away. I reflected on how I came to be exactly there, right? I mean, it all started about a week before in Bahrain. Yeah, 1981, before I joined the service myself, I was married to Al and uh, a Navy wife. We lived in Jufair. We went on a command-sponsored camel ride, right? <laughs> about 30 of us Americans went on this, and there was a Bahraini guy there that had, like, 60 camels, and they had, like, one rope around their neck. No saddle, no blanket, nothing else, just a rope. But I'll tell you, I really wanted a photo of me on one of these camels to send home to everybody, right? But I couldn't get on one. I mean, how do you get on? So supposedly you could knock them on the knees and they'd kneel down and everything, but that's, that's BS. They, they just would stand there and look at you, right? <laughs> but my softball coach boosted his wife Betty up on one, and then he boosted my friend's kid Ronnie up, so I got him to boost me up too. So I'm on one now, sitting behind the hump, holding my one rope, 
And I mean, every time it shifted its weight, I would like clutch my, I had no other way to hold on but to clutch my knees together because there was no saddle or anything. And I mean, we're seven feet up. I'd ridden a horse before, but this was really different. <laughs> so and then like another camel at one point came over and I swear it whispered something to mine. It really made me suspicious. <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> so then all of a sudden a car pulls up and they take off. They take off, I, I didn't know what to do, right? I can't pull back on like my one rope. And I'm sure they didn't speak English. I mean, whoa could mean go in Arabic for all I know. <laughs> but I mean, I was bouncing around on this thing. I gotta get off of this, right? But he saved me from it, he threw me. <laughs> so I landed right in the middle of the stampede and those huge feet, they're like huge feet coming at me and everything, that's pretty much all I remember until the dust cleared. And it was as if I'd, I'd skidded down a highway or something. I had rash burn. I was bleeding all down this side of my body. And this side was really beat up because apparently I'd been trampled and stepped and kicked and what have you. But it was a bad day for me. <laughs> <laughs> but Betty broke her nose. Ronnie, the, the kid, he got rope worms on his hand. And everybody else escaped injuries, but they weren't on a camel yet. <laughs> so... But prior to all that, our marriage was a little bit rocky. I mean, we were young and we had all those things, but we had all the extra stuff. I mean, we had a huge culture difference. We had the heat, you know, we had roommates. Um, we had a lot to deal with. And Al worked really weird, long shifts for the Navy. And like he was stressed out, the Iran hostage crisis had just happened. There was a whole heightened sense of security there. I worked the regular job as far as that goes over there. But we didn't cross paths much. We didn't see much of each other. We were kind of surviving. But about a week after the stampede, he comes home with an airplane ticket for me to go home. Well, I didn't have the energy to argue, really. And I probably thought down deep that maybe a break wouldn't hurt us at that point. So within two days, my friends took me to the Maharak Airport, and off I go. And so my first uh, seatmate was this little Indian girl that wanted me to read her a comic book, right? Well, first of all, it was in Arabic, so I couldn't really <laughs> help her, but <laughs> let's face it, I really wasn't in the mood. I mean, I was sad, I was hurt, had a lot on my mind. I mean, I was leaving without a game plan, right? It's, I was gone, so it was a long seven-hour flight over to Germany. And then in Frankfurt, I didn't get off the plane because, frankly, I was scared. I mean, the only other time I'd flown was over to Bahrain, so I didn't want to get lost or something, so I stayed right on the plane. My next seatmates were these elderly people, so I said, hey, where are you going? And the elderly lady looks at me and goes, no. <laughs> Great. So that was a long, quiet flight. <laughs> Over to London, where I did have to get off the plane, right, in London. So I only went as far as the terminal, and I was waiting for my plane number to come up, and it was those before the digital age, obviously, 81. Do you remember those? They were little metal things that would tick, 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 tick. I just waited till mine ticked up, and then pew, I was back on the plane, and then eight and a half hours more, I had to go to New York City. Well, my new seatmate was David. He was a British businessman, and he bought a bunch of those little wines, and he shared them with me, thankfully. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> we shared stories a lot. I told him all about the stampede, and uh, I told him about how when I first went to Bahrain, all my luggage went to Hong Kong. 
So yeah, here's a main kid, right, from over in Kittery, and it's uh, over 100 degrees every day, humidity through the roof, and I have no change of clothes and no place to buy any. <laughs> I did manage to buy some underwear off a donkey cart salesman that went by, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> so, but guess what, in New York, right, after, in New York, my luggage didn't come down, baggage claim thing. Well, I didn't care anymore. First of all, I had a bunch of those little wines, but also, <laughs> I'm going home. I'll get some clothes. I mean, we can buy clothes in Kittery. <laughs> but then they found it on some other baggage claim and got it for me and all this stuff, which was weird. But now it set me back, so I was really nervous because I'm running late. So I get through customs and everything, and i got to get to my next gate. So this airport worker says, I'll get you a taxi. I'm like, what? He says, you need a taxi to get to your gate. So he says, you can share one with this guy. He's ready. So I jump in this guy's taxi. And he's an Arab guy, totally dressed in traditional, like he's got the thobe, the guthra, the whole thing on, and he says, hello, my name's Mustafa. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, is this some kind of joke? Did I do a round trip here? I've been traveling <laughs> like 24 hours, and now I'm in a cab with Mustafa. <laughs> Give me a break, I must be on candid camera. <laughs> But next thing you know, we're running, I'm running, I'm limping, essentially, to my gate. And I go up to the place. They told me I had to get in line to get a new seat assignment. I'm like, what? And they said, well, I know that's a long line, but everybody there is going to Boston, too. So I get in this line, and that's where I met Helen. She was really cool. She had, like, this big beach hat on, you know, wide-brim thing and huge sunglasses. She'd been in a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> she was cool. So we made fast friends. And when I finally get on the plane, Somebody's in my seat. I knew seat assignment. So she, Helen goes, hey, come sit back here with me. So I did, thankfully. That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so we get taxied out there and everything. And just before takeoff, a guy like four rows ahead of us has a heart attack. So we get pulled off of the thing, you know, the paramedics come and work on him. Right? They, they end up taking him by ambulance off of the plane. We get back out there and we take off. I'm like, yes, I'm finally going home. But then I'm thinking, I'm not really going home home yet because I hadn't actually told my mom about any of this stuff. I didn't want her to worry. <laughs> so I, I had a couple of high school buddies picking me up at the airport, right, Lori and Jay. And when I finally landed, I was almost the last one off the plane because I sat back with Helen. Um, she goes, where have you been? We've been waiting here for hours. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm so glad to see you too. <laughs> right? So we stopped at McDonald's on the highway because I couldn't really tell you when I ate last. And uh, then we get out on Route 1 in Danvers, and there we were in this huge pickup truck, like careens into the back of our car. It rear ends us, and we bounce off the guardrail and everything. My Big Mac from the back seat we smashes all over the dashboard of the car. We do that whole bouncing thing, and we skid to a halt, and cars are like going by us, you know, still the wind's doing that to the car. Holy crap. You should see the bumper and the trunk were pushed right up under the car to like the wheels weren't on the ground anymore. I don't know how she kept us on the road. It was pretty scary to look at, actually. And so then they towed it away, right, with that darn suitcase in the trunk of that car. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. It'd be another hour before Jay's dad would come and get us from Kittery, right? So we waited at the police station, and the guy that hit us was so drunk, he was handcuffed to the wall which was the only reason he stayed in his chair, because he was handcuffed to the wall. 
at this point, my wounds are bleeding and stuff now, you know, I mean, uh, so, but my bandages went with the car, so I had to ask the cop, right, for, I said, you, you know, and he goes, somebody was injured in the accident, you should have made a statement, you have to, I'm like, well, I wasn't exactly injured in the accident, I was in a camel stampede. <laughs> You know, that guy didn't even blank. He just like, threw a couple bandages. <laughs> right? <laughs> so then I couldn't go to my mom's at this point. It's like 4 a.m. local time or whatever. I'd freak her out. She didn't know I was coming. So I went to, I get to a friend's house, and I knocked on their door, and of course they weren't up, so I had to go around knocking on the windows. But I could do that to my friends. So when they finally came to the door, they let me in to sleep on their couch, which I slept for almost two days. <laughs> there were four roommates living there. They went grocery shopping, cooking, watch TV, everything, and I didn't budge. <laughs> they were a little worried, but when I finally did wake up, <laughs> I called my mom, and she came to get me there. And when I told her the story, she was so angry. She said, what if you'd have been killed? I would have said, but my Tina's over in the Middle East, right? Wow. Oh, I only wanted a picture of me on a camel, right? <laughs> I did get one, by the way. I, somebody took this with a 110 camera, so I can't yes. blow it up, right? And it's not of me, it's of the herd, but that if you, I am in the background if you had a magnifying glass. I did get one. I do actually have another print from that day, but. I'd have to moon you to show it to you. And I'll, spare you. <laughs> I'll spare you that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's always somebody who tells a camel stampede story. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tina. Our last teller is going to be Tom Osberg. He came to storytelling by listening to his dad's fisherman friends. When one story ended, it led to another and another, and that just drew him in. That's what he loves most about telling stories, their ability to transport us to, um, into the lives of others and bring us all together. A native of New Hampshire, Tom has hiked, camped, and canoed around the state. For years, his family was audience to his tales of adventure, but now, with his five kids all grown up and gone, at their suggestion, Tom has started sharing his stories with others. Although they are all true, he says, his kids call the stories Tom Tall Tales, <laughs> which is the name of his website, tomtalltales.com. After making a career as a robotics programmer. Tom is now on a 35-year sabbatical <laughs> for studies of life and sharing life's stories, like this one titled, The Ghost in My Shelter. Come on up, Tom. So I hiked up to the log lean-to on the Tennessee-North Carolina border on the Appalachian Trail. I had left a couple of through-hikers on the Appalachian Trail behind, 
that day. Um, there was Crash. We had funny trail names. Uh, there was Frogger, and there was uh, Red Fox. And I was glad to be alone, though. The, the shelter was log with, with a dirt floor and two shells for eight people, but it was, I was alone. And there was a note hanging on the chain link fence on the front that said, shh, beware of ghosts. But I wasn't afraid of anything these days. The world was a mess. I had my draft number for the Vietnam War. I was taking a semester off of school, which wasn't a good idea when you had a draft number. And I was tired of hearing my dad yell at me, get your hair cut, hippie, my shoulder length hair. And I just wanted to pound out the miles. Um, my my shirt was so sweaty that I'd eaten holes in it. But today I was alone. I was going to stretch out, listen to the birds, eat my granola. Then I heard some noise. I heard pots and pans. I heard kids yelling. I, there was a bunch of kids coming up the trail, and, and I was just hoping they were going to go by to a different shelter. But no, they, they piled in. They pushed my stuff away, way to the side. I, I gave them the evil eye, but you know, they, they were gonna be there that night. And, and the leaders were bringing up one short kid who was at the end, probably the, the runt of the litter, but I was, you know, and it, I, in a little while I, I overheard them talking and they were trying to figure out who was gonna be on the top bunk and who was on, gonna be in the bottom bunk with the, uh, the smelly old guy and and I'm thinking to myself, you know, uh, mosquitoes don't really bother me, and and uh, I haven't really showered my hair in 300 miles. But I'm only 20 years old. I'm not old, so it can't be me, can it? <laughs> but they did stick the kid's stuff down next to me, so it must be me. Uh, he really was kind of a sharp kid, though. So, I, you know, I felt bad for him, and I... And I talked to him a little bit, and he said, hey, mister, so where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from the south. You know, and he said, mister, where are you going? And I said, I'm, I'm going north. And he said, hey, mister, what are the rocks for around the end, edge of the shelter? And I, I thought that was a good, good question. I said, the rocks are to keep critters out. That seemed to worry him a little bit. And I said, well, they're big boulders. They'll be okay. And he said, hey, mister, what's the chain link fence across the front for? And I said, that's to keep bears out from eating nosy kids. <laughs> so he let me alone for a little while, and, and I got onto the edge of the shelter, and we were all bedding down for the night, and, and the kids in the top bunk were, were laughing it up and having fun, and, and I got my book in the corner, and the kid was down next to me, and I was feeling a little bad for him. And, and then there was some scratching by the side, and, the shelter and he got a little worried and I said don't worry those are those are big boulders and it's probably just a raccoon and he got a little worried and I said well or a chipmunk you know and then the, the scratching came to the back of the shelter and then it came to the side and nothing much happened for a while and and then and then he looked out and he said look the ghost and at the far end of the clearing in front there was some big white animal by the trees we couldn't quite figure it out. And then it, it darted across to some more trees, but it was big, not as big as a bear, 
And I didn't think it could be one of my friends because it was smaller than a human, but, but it was way bigger than like a raccoon or something like that. And then it darted over to some bushes. And then it was, it was working its way across the clearing to the left side where I was sleeping. And now I was thinking I would be better on the top shelf. <laughs> and then we were all quiet for a while. One second and then another second. Then we heard one of the rocks roll. And then another rock rolled. And then, and then something black darted across the inside of the shelter. And then another thing darted across. And then six baby skunks were running around inside the shelter. And now we're all kind of, kind of pulling ourselves away inside, worried about skunks inside the shelter, inside the shelter with a chain link fence keeping them in. And then some more rocks rolled. And then something huge and white was squeezing between the dirt floor and the logs. It pushed my pack out of the way, and it squeezed up through the hole in this huge white skunk. The mother of all skunks, this huge white skunk, came out through the floor and started going around and sniffing all of our packs. And now I'm really worried. Now I'm worried somebody's going to cry out and I'm going to get a face full being down near the floor, the burning, the smelling. And I'm lying there. And then I really got afraid because the kid was pointing at my head. And I looked up and I could feel something pulling and chewing on my hair. My shoulder length hair was still hanging off and it was pulling and chewing on my hair that was hanging off the shelf. And then all of a sudden, there was a chew. The, the skunk sneezed. <laughs> and the kid had the nerve to laugh. And he said, even skunks think you stink. <laughs> and the little skunks all ran out the hole, and so did the big skunk. Luckily, everybody else went back to sleep, and they didn't make a noise, so I slept well. And in the morning, in the morning I, I got my stuff up real quick and packed it up, and I was going to get out of there before anybody had anything to say to me. And, but the kid woke up, and he had one more question. He said, so, mister, through hiker, even you get scared? And I said, yeah. Even I get scared of things sometimes. And, and kid... Even you will be a big adventurer sometime. <laughs> Thank you. Now that is a service to offer, skunk scarer awayer. <laughs> <laughs> That goes on your new resume. <laughs> all right, thank you all tonight. Thanks so much to our six fabulous storytellers and to our great studio audience. Coming up next, there is an interview that David Frainer will do of Tina Charpentier, the the uh, survivor, survivor of the camel stampede. <laughs> but before we get to that, I have some information to impart. 
Our next True Tales Live will be on no uh, Tuesday, November 27th. The theme is coming of age, growing up, growing old, growing older. Lots of options. And I think that as of last I checked, we had a couple spots left. So if you want to be part of that, get in touch with us. You can email us at truetaleslive, the number one, at gmail.com. And all of our 2019 shows are now out there with the themes, and none of them are completely filled, so contact us about getting on our 2019 list as well. If you are interested in telling a story here but aren't really sure of yourself or just want help with your piece, because we can always find something to talk to you about with your story, we love doing that. We have a great time at these workshops. Uh, come to our monthly workshop here at PPM-TV, which is 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the first Tuesday of most months, 7.30 to 9. They're free and open to all. The next one is November 6th, and then we take, the Dece take December off, so no workshop or regular show that month. But November 6th, workshop here. We'd love to have you. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime is video on demand at YouTube. You go to youtube.com and search for PPM TV True Tales Live. Let's thank a few of the folks who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer. Bill Humphreys and Chad Cordner. I am Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales live show, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening and watching and being here. And next, we're going to cut to David Frainer interviewing Tina Sharpentier. <laughs>